also keeper keeper wise, I mean, Tim Payne played uh, a beautiful knock in the first innings, but not only that, he kept pretty well. Not too many tough catches, but there were no dropped catches from him beyond the stumps um, in the second innings. Honestly, Rishi, he may be BJ Watling a run for his money. Yeah, thing with Tim Payne. He's, he's yo, I'm going to leave the podcast, yo. Yeah. Let's, let's Tim Payne. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to the 8th Silly Points Podcast. It's been a while, but we're back, uh, finished up with finals. Um, I'm joined by Lakshan Rishi, and we have a newcomer, Mayank. Um, he decided to join us today. Um, he's from Australia, so he'll have some good insight onto the test match, recent test match between India and <laughs> Australia. But um, yeah, we're just going to we're gonna start and uh, start just talking about the India-Australia first match in the series and go from there talking about selections. And yeah, hope you enjoy. Take it away. Mayank, if you want to talk about certain, like, like the COVID conditions with cricket, um, yeah, you you can go. Yeah, well, I'm I'm currently in Sydney at the moment, and I guess some of you have probably heard about I guess the recent outbreak. I think uh, Australia had or Sydney had a handful of new cases, which make the Sydney Test look in doubt. Um, I don't think there'll be crowds there. I think it might even be possible that it gets swapped with Brisbane. But, yeah, essentially there's there's been about 10 new cases a day for the last uh, four or five days with 30 new cases before that. Uh, and I think the government's advice is, is obviously to avoid a crowd at any sort of cricket venue. So, um, yeah, that's the situation with COVID in Sydney at the moment. Uh, fingers crossed we can get on top of it and hopefully have some, some, some form of a Sydney test. But yeah, numbers are looking good at the moment. Awesome. Yeah. How's local That's... cricket there? Are you are you guys having to quarantine or? Uh, local cricket is is a little bit more relaxed. I think um, there's there's an app to track every player's movements to and from games. It's sort of like similar to a QR code sign in. Uh, obviously, like teams don't social distance between themselves, but obviously from the other team. Uh, but it's still going ahead at the moment. We're currently on Christmas break with uh, games to resume on the 9th of January, unless government advice says otherwise. But right now, no sport, especially outdoor sport, has been cancelled. Um, so, yeah, it should be should be going ahead. But, yeah, local cricket's been good. I, I've, I've joined uh, my local cricket team. Uh, we play B13s, uh, park cricket. It's pretty village. If you've seen any of the sports bet videos on Facebook floating around, I'd say they're pretty accurate. So it's a great time, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, moving to an entirely different side, at least, of cricket, um, India, Australia had a lot of ups and downs for India, at least. And uh, yeah, what are you guys' thoughts on it? You know, I have the feeling that at least with this test, the deficiencies of India's overseas selections are once again laid bare. We saw that in um, in England, you know, or in South Africa, some of the decisions that they made came back to Biden, for example, dropping Pajara in England, dropping Rahane in South Africa. All of those decisions came back to Biden just a little bit. I think here, once again, you're seeing that Prithvi Shaw is not a guy who's built for Australia, right? He's the type of person who plays away from his body a lot. Um, and he tends to be a little bit looser in his shots. As a result, um, it leaves a very easy opening to exploit. We saw in the tour games that his form was just not up to par. He wasn't middling the ball well. We had Shubman Gill, who was actually looking in pretty good nick, select his side to go with Shaw. Now, I understand that he's a man in possession, but I'm of the opinion that you pick the best player at the time for the team. Another thing, Saha over punt. That made absolutely no sense to me. I was of the opinion that Punt did everything possible to keep his place, given his fact that he was the overseas wicketkeeper. He was the man in possession. And he did exceptionally well in the tour match. He scored a century, rapid-fire century. Saha ended up dropping two catches and scoring absolutely nothing. So, again, you got to ask. Punt would probably have added about 20, 40-odd more runs. Um, would that have been enough to win the test? No, but it probably could have gone a long way overall into giving India more confidence. Yeah, um, there's not. I'm still in shock by this by the cricket by the test match. I have not even been able to look at any cricket websites, look at anything because it's just a 
it's just it's just been a shock. India went from a position of real strength, where they were they were a bit lucky to even be in a position of such strength, considering how just pathetic the fielding catching was. But from a strength of 30, 40 run lead and having a whole day of batting, not in to- the toughest of conditions, to be blown out for 36 was build a combination of probably the best fa- bowling attack in the world at the moment and very tentative batting by players who are not in form. Um, yeah, they definitely, the lead, even without, even with the 36 all out, the lead could have been already at 200 if. Obviously, the, run, the day one runout, which does happen, but it was a costly mistake by the ca- current captain now, Rahane, and then the the number of drop catches in this in the first innings, despite absolutely brilliant bowling by all the the three Indian Pacers and and uh, and Ashwin, really okay. just really just show that India really just not didn't deserve to win the Test match. It's not and it's not a Test match problem only. The ODI and T Twenty series. Showed India probably this probably been India's worst feeling in catching series in a long, long time. It was probably a reminder of probably not people my age, but probably age who've grown up to see India been a pretty much a bottom five feeling side in the world, and it's just not the standards that uh, any international team should be living up to. Why, why do you think that is? Because we saw that in the IPL as well, where there were so many dropped catches, and everyone was saying every, people are back from lockdown, and they were, they were making excuses for that, but we're still seeing that from the Indians. Why is that? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know because the people who are dropping catches, these aren't most of these players are are not like this. Uh, we saw in this in the ODIs, uh, that one, he's an excellent fielder. Maya Gagarin was a good fielder. Um, Prithvi Shaw is not a great fielder, so I mean, so that I so and he does have a lot of fitness issues, but the catch he dropped was was schoolboy level. I'm I'm confident anyone in our own creative club can take take a catch like that. So I don't, I don't know, I because these. Uh, most of these players are strong athletes. I, they they should be catching all of these with, without any trouble. And on that note, there is word that the management's going to drop Prithvi Shaw in part because of his fielding and his attitude in the field over the course of the match. The fact that his effort was what it was just highlighted a number of concerns that the inner circles of Mumbai cricket have had around this man for a long time. Uh, the rumors that I've read over the last while have been that he's a little bit lackadaisical in uh, his fielding, um, occasionally a bit lazy. His fitness isn't up to par. Is any of that true or justified? I don't know, but it makes him an easy scapegoat right now in the eyes of the management. Yeah, but it's the management's fault. It's the selection's fault for putting deciding to put it out of form. A player who's been out of form for the last three, four months, thinking that he was going to work in his first overseas test against the... Against Pat third- Cummins and Josh Hazelwood. I mean, what in okay. the world? Against the best place attack, I don't know what they were thinking. They're just—they really just set him up to fail. I think. Yeah. As a for a player who is one of the brightest talents in the world and has a 55 average in Runji, I would have let him start in easier matches. Probably waited until the home summer and probably given a opportunity either to uh Chibman Gill, who showed form in in the warm-up matches and has a superior first-class average. Not saying that Gill is the solution here. He is the solution to the problems. I would. I'll be shocked if even he scores against. Against our, the Australian face deck, considering he's a debutant and it's his first, and it'll be his first phase. But they really set Prithvi Shaw up to fail. If you're struggling against the moving ball in IPL, you're not going to be scoring in, in in a test match. A red ball is considerably more difficult. And the way he got out against Mitchell Stark, Trent Bolt was doing the same thing to him. And that was. Yeah, it's a known weakness. Ricky Ponting highlighted it in the IPL two years ago. Yeah, it's a known weakness, but it's something you can get away in, in T20 cricket usually because only ball really swings for one over, but he wasn't even able to survive that over. So, so Mark, do it. what do you think, though? Well, I think, you know, it's a bit harsh, a little bit harsh with the way all the Indian fans are ripping into their own team. I reckon credit with credit to you, Australia bowled bloody brilliantly. 36 all out was definitely an anomaly and it won't happen again. And I think one of the other big factors is it's, you know, a pink ball. Um, and the red ball with the MCG isn't, isn't going to do as much, I reckon. Um, right. So I think a combination of some prob- probably better selection on India's end and uh, and the red ball and probably a flatter MCG deck as it has been in, in the past, I think we'll we'll probably see a lot closer contest. I think as as batting, as much as I'd love to gloat about 36 all that for the rest of the podcast, <laughs> uh, you know, Australia's batting wasn't too crash hot either. I still don't understand why Joe Burns is opening. You know, 
Um, and it was it was pretty unconvincing for Manus that, that I think what 47, 48 he scored and and just in general Tim Payne really dug him out of a hole, which it really could have been like 120 all out if, if Tim Payne hadn't scored and the tail hadn't wagged as it has done always for Australia. So um, I think it's a little harsh and, and India got a little unlucky. Australia just bowled crazy well in that session. And I, I and I expect Melbourne to be a lot closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's in, that, in that first yeah. innings, do you think the collapse of Australia was like a result of the order not being settled, or was it just the Indian bowling strength? Because that attack was bowling extremely well. Shami didn't pick up a wicket, but personally, I thought he was the best bowler there. Yeah, I think it's a great bowling or like bowling performance from both teams, and you know, it's great to see. Um, I think Australia's batting is probably a little unsettled. Like you know, Burns and Wade opening is doesn't inspire anyone with confidence. Um, and obviously, you know, with 90 to chase, they, they found their hands a little bit more. But I think, yeah, first innings, lack of confidence, probably a little bit of lack of practice as well for some of those players in a, in a test situation. I think that matters as well. Um, yeah. 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 And, and some of the players being out of form. It's an interesting series, though. It's two very strong bowling attacks. Play, playing in a country that usually is high scoring, high scoring and flat pitches. So I think MCG will be interesting because it usually has been a flat wicket for the last few years. And but both sides, both sides batting is really not proving any confidence. I think India, if India probably made got fifteen to sixteen wickets in the in the first innings, it's just the fielders were letting them down consistently. And obviously, mm-hmm. we saw how India imploded against against uh, the pink ball, but. Even with, it being ball, yeah, even with it being a pink ball, I don't even think the ball was moving that much. It was just impeccable accuracy. The length they were getting absolutely. It was it was a day when all the nicks were being found because they were India weren't even playing and missing. They were just nicking the ball. So it it, it is unlucky that it was one of those days. But you have to also question India's. Um, they have been struggling with the moving ball for probably their entire history. But in New Zealand, they only like three bats and made a fifty in, in two Test matches. They obviously were beaten four one in England simply because they couldn't play the moving ball, and so it's it's not a new problem at all. Even though thirty six is an anomaly, struggling against the moving ball for most of the, the batsmen, even the ones who ha- who have famed overseas records like Ajinkya Rahane, Pujara, even their record against the moving ball is not that strong either. And with with Kohli being the only player who actually got a score for India in this Test match, out it really really I don't see how India can make a come back in their batting head. So here's a just... counterpoint. Go on, George. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but um, uh, I, I, I was just saying I didn't want to really focus entirely on just the bowling, like pace bowling attack, because if you saw spinning, spinners, at least in first innings for both both sides, spin was what took wickets, which was surprising to see on an Australian wicket. And uh, both Ashwin and Lyon bowled extremely well. And yeah. they picked up wickets. So, I mean, I'd... On on that thought as well, should we be bringing in Jadeja as well to have that second spinner, seeing how successful it was in the first innings? I only I think Jadeja should play, but I only think that because I don't think India can go with a four man bowling attack simply because one of the pace boys is a debutante, and you never know how that's going to work, especially especially if it's a flat MCG wicket and if players like Smith and Labuschagne get in get in, it'll be a real struggle for India if they have. Uh, one new guy in, especially, and they they can't risk any more injuries. They already over they even despite how brilliantly they bowled, they did overbowl Burma a bit. So that's the only reason why I'd be going with JJ. If Shami was fit, I probably would have sticked with the with the four man attack. But I think we just need a little bit of backup just in case whoever they pick between Sani and Suraj is not a successful formula. Yeah, who comes in for you, Sani or Suraj? I think Suraj is. First class record is slightly better, so I'd yeah. be going with him. I don't. That's what I based off of. Yeah. Yeah, Luxury, you had a counterpoint. Yeah. yeah, my counterpoint is that I think the. If we're talking about India not coming back in batting, maybe that's true. I tend to think, though, that the pink ball is the hardest to bat against in general. And so it'll only get better for them from here. Melbourne is an absolute road. Um, you know, I think to put it lightly, they've been given some stern words about their pitch preparation recent years. Um, if we move on past that point of just flat batting tracks, there's also much less movement with 
the red ball instead of the pink ball. Um, I don't doubt that Cummins and Hazelwood can find movement out of anything, but there's a limit to what they can do. And the pink ball is much more conducive to hooping it around under lights. The red ball is in the middle of the baking sun in the day. So I think furthermore, I'm getting annoyed by you not saying Stark as well. Oh, I'm <laughs> getting to Stark in a second. I'm getting yeah. to Stark in a second. Because he also got four against the first innings. I think Adelaide is not the most friendly um, batting environment. And so I understand the conditions about India not possibly being able to come back to a um, good enough performance this quickly, given all the technical holes that we see in their team. However, there's an argument to be made that, um, you know, batting at the MCG is significantly easier than batting at Adelaide under lights. So I think India will probably do better than most people believe. I tend to think Gill is a good replacement for Kohli right away in number four. We know the management are trying to put him in there at number four because they view him as a future centerpiece. And they're trying to give him every chance to succeed. And I think the this is part of the reason why the rumor changes of Rahul coming in at opening instead of Gill um, and Gil coming in at number four. So I think India have a better chance at um, doing well. Now, they have to be careful of Cummins, Hazelwood, and Stark. They can extract movement from anywhere. Stark's great at cleaning up the tail. But they also have to be careful of Nathan Lyon here. Um, Stark creates some rough that Lyon can bowl into. That's really important because what it then does is it makes things just a little bit harder for the Indian batsmen. The great players are spin, but as we saw with Pajara, even the best aren't impenetrable. And if you give him enough rough and enough tools to work with, Lion will cause a lot of problems for you. So I tend to think that the next test, the factor that they should really be worried about is the threat posed by Lion. The bounce that he gets, the overspin, that tends to get amplified with heavy rough areas. And that's what's going to happen when Stark creates those footmarks for him. So that's an interesting point you made about line. So what I've noticed on Nathan line, especially against India in the last uh, probably two test series, but he's always started very well against India. Uh, always a five for, he obviously had a 12 for in Adelaide, a seven for in the Adelaide test in in 2018. Always starts very well in India. And then slowly and slowly, it seems like the Indian batsmen finally catch up to speed and they're finally able to, especially on the flatter wickets, they're finally able to not lose their wickets to him and even be able to belt him a bit. I remember when Mike Agarwal came and made his debut, he took a completely different turn of playing line. Line had picked up 15 wickets in the first two test matches. And then first over, he went straight after him, cover drive against a spin right over his head immediately. And that completely changed the series. And despite starting the series of 15 wickets, line ended up with an average of over 30 for the entire test series. And so I think it's really important. I think it's really important that India actually attack Nathan line initially in the, in his opening spell Especially if they get if they can find a ball, anything only over pitched outside off through the covers or something bang straight down the ground. And I think a player like Mike Agarwal can do this. But the only thing is can he get can he, can a, can the openers be able to get through the opening so, so that when Lion comes in, he's bowling to batsmen who are on 30, 40, not a batsman playing on zero. That's another thing. If Lion can start against any batsmen who are already in, there's already settling against the Pacers, it'll be a much more difficult task for him compared to him coming in, bowling to Pajara, who's on five and Coley who's on zero and then he's able to work it through another thing about start of uh, fast starters yeah none of the Indian batsmen right now I would say it's fast starters Rahane does like to take a risk or two at the start of his innings especially especially against the spin he'll love to come out and play one two big shots if he's able to get it away usually he's able to get a score on but it's not been a consistent thing for him in the pa- in the past few years and I think I think a lot of the pressure we've everyone's been talking about Saha Saha, Shaw, these guys are obviously going to be dropped. It's pretty certain that the Indian manager is going to drop Saha and Shaw. But I think it's going to be a, a lot of pressure on Jinky Rahani. He's, he's, he's a new captain of the team. He's going to be batting at a crucial position of number five. And not to forget, he's really only in the Indian test team because of his performance overseas. And considering in the last leg of overseas tours, he only really scored in West Indies and had a few 50s here and there. He's, but he's not made a cent- century outside in Sina countries going to be a lot of pressure on him to really lead the team in the next three test matches. So I think he's going to be the most crucial player right now for if the Indian batsmen want to make a big comeback in the rest of the series. And obviously this is Melbourne. He did make his one of his best hundreds that got him to fame was here at Melbourne again six years ago where he pretty much destroyed Mitchell Johnson. Pretty much everyone remembers how he hooked and pulled them all around the ground. So that's really the only uh, – that's really – 
the only hope I really see is if him and Pujara can really lead the batting lineup in place of Coley. Yeah. Um, on the conversation of selection, Mike, what do you think about um, Cameron Green being selected and opening positions? I know you expressed that Wade wasn't exactly the smartest of decisions to have or Burns, but um, what do you think Australia's play is right now um, for the upcoming test matches, the entire series as a whole? Because, I mean, I feel like personally that Burns is settled in for his since his 50, as in like he, Australia is going to be more likely to choose him right now as the opening spot as a more experienced player and having shown that he's slightly in form with that 50. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, in terms of Cameron Green, I think he's just he's just a long-term project for Australia. And I think, you know, who doesn't want, you know, an all-rounder who can bat six and bowl 140 clicks? Um, so I think Cameron Green stays regardless of how well he does over this series. I think the opportunity to be in and around the squad against and then play against a depleted Indian team would be good for him and his development. Um, so I think Cameron Green gets picked and, you know, he's come off a good shield shield season as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Cameron Green and, and sort of trying to push an all-rounder into the Australian team. And I think management's looking at Ashes ahead later, later down the line. Um, so I think Cameron Green gets picked. And then Joe Burns, you know... <laughs> I mean, I'd love to get picked on some of the scores he was making in, in the warm-up games in Shield. Um, but yeah, you score 51 not out, and David Warner's um, not made it in terms of the yeah, COVID safe bubble that Australia has going on. So Joe Burns immediately gets picked as opener. It's hard to drop someone making 51 not out when they're chasing 90. And he didn't look that bad when he was making that 51. I don't think he had way too many chances if any at all. So, yeah, he gets picked, um, you know, as much as everyone loves to hit on him, I hope he does well in, in that position. And Melbourne is a good ground and, and a good first innings ground. Um, Wade will look like he'll open again, which, um, you know, he doesn't open normally at, at a first-class level. So it's a, it's a bit of an unknown quantity. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how he goes on the flatter pitch in Melbourne. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if Wade does well at opening. So overall, I think, I think it'll be an unchanged team for Australia, I suspect. Yeah, I also agree it'll be an unchanged team for Australia. But I also really respect the Australian selectors for persisting with Joe Burns. I know he's made some poor scores in Shield and the warm-up matches, but they have dumped him twice before in his career with really no, with really no merit. He was dumped, obviously... He played in the latter end of the Australian summer two years ago. He made the first century off the summer for Australia, and then he was dumped for the Ashes without any real merit. And then he was also dumped after he made his debut. He was he made a few fifties against India. He and then he just got he just got dumped when they decided to bring back in Sean Marsh, Mitchell Marsh into the into the twenty fifteen Ashes. So, and then even after making hella a lot of runs in the following summer when they brought him back. And he made runs in New Zealand. They dumped him again after a poor Sri Lanka series, and and a poor South Africa series. When it's not when he was not the only batsman failing against the turning and moving ball. There was a lot of batsmen in the Australian team there that were not helping Smith and Warner at all. So I think considering how his career has been, how unfairly he's been treated by the Australian at different times, I think it's fair. I think it's, I'm glad they're at least getting an extended run this time. I'm still off the belief that Usman Khawaja was way better than Joe Burns and Matthew Wade, and he should be allowed. He should be opening. I know, I know they Marnus Labuschagne kind of curtailed him his career at number three and has ended him his uh, run there. But he still averages forty. His average as an as an oper, opener in Australia is, I think it's pretty. It's like a seventy plus, I believe. And yep. he's in yeah. he's in decent form in Shield and. Based just based on just the eye test, too, you can just tell he's clearly a class above the, the current set of openers. But I'm not the Australian selector, and, that, and what I'm saying is definitely not going to happen. So I, I do see yeah. the team. Bro. I, I'm not really sure why Osman Quadra wasn't picked, um, but I, I think credit to Justin Langer and how he's sort of stuck by Joe Burns. I think the the attitude of giving your your batsman a real good run at test cricket rather than sort of chopping and changing is the reason why Joe Burns got that 51 in, in second innings. I think that sort of confidence from management is probably like helping him play better as well and just trusting his own technique and, and batting better. 
keeper keeper wise, I mean, Tim Payne played uh, a beautiful knock in the first innings, but not only that, he kept pretty well. Not too many tough catches, but there were no dropped catches from him beyond the stumps um, in the second innings. Honestly, Rishi, he may be giving a run for uh, run for, BJ Watling a run for his money. Yeah. Thing with Tim Payne, he's, he's yo, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave the podcast, yo. Let's yeah. let's Tim Payne. <laughs> yo, talking about Tim Payne's keeping though. Payne ends up. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Actually, look at the flag on the play, yo. Talk to me when BJ Watling. Talk to me when Tim Payne scores a double set. I mean, no one's arguing that Tim Payne's not even close to as good of a batsman as BJ Watling. Like we we all know this. The thing with Tim Payne is, it was well known. Um, here's an anecdote. I think Rishi, you might know it, but. Um, Tim Payne has always been regarded as the best gloveman in Australia ever since, even when he was injured and he came back, the reason they invested in him so much is that because Australia never really had a keeper that was just as tidy as him. Even Brad Haddon was not really picked as much for his keeping so much as for his, his mateship and his banter and, uh, his good handy batting. I don't know. Haddon has some classic one. Yeah, he did. But Haddon thing with Haddon is. There was always a sense that his batting helped him a little bit more. Um, and uh, the thing, especially with that actor, his legacy in the actors, yeah. And, and the thing with Payne is, um, he's always been regarded as the best keeper Australia have had. And um, when, when he's healthy, there's a reason he was picked at 26, hadn't only got in really after Payne broke his finger and spent six years out in the wilderness. But stepping back in a second, here's a Payne story that you guys might be familiar with. Uh, 2016 to 17 Ashes series, uh, right before they were debating who to pick Neville Wade and Payne were the three options, uh, of them. Neville was probably the consensus pick as the best, uh, batsman slash gloveman combination. Uh, even though Payne was the best gloveman period, but the selector, the chairman of selectors, I think it was John Howard, um, or Trevor, Trevor, um, Wade was Trevor Hans back then. I think the chairman of selector yeah. was Trevor Hans back then, and he wants. He's still the chairman. Oh, he is. Yeah. So he wanted to. Say, he said, "I want the best keeper." Period. And we're gonna go pick the best keeper, regardless of who it is. So that was Tim Payne. The question was: Was Tim Payne? Did Tim Payne remember how to bat? So. There was a first-class game, the one before the selection. It's important to note Matthew Wade had absolutely no form of bat or gloves. Um, he was always on the outskirts, and he was fighting for his place. He knew he needed a big score. But he was the incumbent. He was right? the incumbent, he and he was up. on the verge of being dropped because of his horror series earlier. Um, so I think it was Alex Doolin and uh, Tim Payne batting in the middle um, for Tasmania. And uh, Wade was next up to bat. And uh, Payne, for some reason, never ended up getting out. And so the coaches kept telling Wade, who's the captain, Man, I think we should declare. And he says, no, no, I don't think we have enough. And it's because Wade wanted a chance to bat. Uh, as luck would have it, uh, Payne's partner ended up scoring a century or a double century. Payne ended up scoring like 70 odd or 80. And that was all the proof the selectors needed, that Payne could bat and that he was up to the challenge of the Ashes. So they ended up picking him, and Wade's been out of the test team um, as a gloveman ever since. Then he came back as a specialist batsman because he reinvented his game as a batsman instead, but he no longer really keeps except for as an emergency option in tests. Dude, he bowls well. Matthew Wade bowls well, too. <laughs> what a powerful whip on his arm. Yeah, he bowls 138. That match against New Zealand, I think Hazelwood got injured, so they gave Wade a few overs. Ross Taylor was struggling. Move the ball. He's quick. He'd be the number one bowler in the USA. I could already say that with confidence. Uh, I think Ross Taylor oh, was probably more I, surprised than struggling. But yeah, it was pretty funny when he came on. I think no one had any idea what was going on. Yeah. When he, came was, was, he, came on, he came on and New Zealand were like three for 10. So like they were just, they would just start trying to hit him because they were like, we're not getting runs from Hazelwood, Cummins, Stark. That's a, it's, it's, it's the change of height. It's the change of height. You have Stark, Hazelwood, like all <laughs> six five plus, yeah. and then you have yeah. you have him like coming in like five five eight. 
Yeah, like that's a really interesting story, but I do think Peter Neville's a better gloveman than Tim Payne. I, from what I, from what I've seen from when he was playing, and he was also just like how Joe Burns is scapegoated and dropped. Peter Neville had, had there was absolutely no merit. Neville was never as popular with the team. The reason that they dropped Neville in the first place and brought back Wade was because there was a big inquest into Australia's culture and their team, and they decided that they needed to be more aggressive. This is after the. Um, this is after they kept suffering calamity after calamity overseas. Eventually, they decided, oh, we need to be more aggressive. We need to bring back the the fire. And so that's why David Warner ended up taking on the name of the bull again. Um, and uh, Tim Payne ended up, or Peter Neville ended up getting dropped for Matthew White because he was much more aggressive behind the stumps. See, I'm, of a, I'm, of, I'm, of, I'm definitely of a different opinion than most of Australia. I think Tim Payne is underrated batsman. And an overrated keeper. Like I've always thought, Peter Neville's a better keeper than him. I think Tim Payne's a way better batsman than people claim it to be. He consistent. He he outscored Steve Smith, David Warner in in their in the Sandpaper series. He was consistently scoring fifties and <laughs> rescuing Australia from score. So and that's again and that and that's the African bowling attack to me was the best in the world. So well, I think I've always rated Tim as a batsman, but I don't rate him as the best keeper in the world. I never have. I think Tim Payne's selection is um, is the fact that he's a good captain as well. Like. Yeah, you have Peter Neville and you have Matthew Wade, but I think Tim Payne shines above the rest with his with his captaincy. So I think yeah, you know, it's true. You know, batting glove was they're all important, but I think his his captaincy is really what gets him over the edge in in that selection debate. Yeah, but in that yeah, selection I mean, debate, I'm pretty sure like Australia was not expecting Steve Smith to be banned, right? For that's you know, true. I pretty Steve Smith is definitely a long term captaincy. Uh, investment so I, we never would have i don't think anyone would have ever assumed tim Payne to be captain but yeah he's been brilliant he was absolutely brilliant in this test match i think he counterattacked india gave india just like for most of the bats and gave him a chance on 20 but he completely played with positivity he was the only one who actually looked to score off of ashwin who was bowling absolutely brilliantly and it showed it showed that's the 70 runs changed it changed the momentum and it gave the australian bowlers a little bit of hope. there was a very real chance australia could have been bowled out for about 90 very real. There chance. was, and in fact, I would have put it as a likely outcome before Tim Payne dug in and decided to yeah. basically single-handedly change the course of the game. I don't think the man of the match award was quite something that should have gone to him, but also I can't really argue with the results that he ended up producing. But I do want to segue into the topic that we were discussing next, which is the um, second test. I think as Suraj you had mentioned earlier, what do you yeah. guys think about? A, um, what the team, what the major changes are going to be like. In particular, there's one rumor change, which has everyone a little bit confused, right? Saha getting dropped for Punt, we all knew this was going to happen. It seems as if Saha is being, it seems as if Punt is going to be the option even in England, provided he doesn't have a miserable series here per, per a BCCI source at Times of India. Similarly, it looks as if Shaw is set to cool his heels on the sideline for a little while. Um, Gil slots in at four for Kohli for the remainder of the series. Rahul opens next game, possibly, and then Rohit slots back in. But the one change that we haven't discussed yet is the possibility of bringing Rabi Jadeja for Hanuma Vihari. And I wanted to get your steward, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think we mentioned it briefly earlier. It was, uh, as Rishi said, it was the idea of bringing in that extra bowler for um, to to overcome the lack of experience from the either Siraj or Saini. And yeah, I think it's. I personally think it was it's it's the right decision to bring Jadeja in. I don't know if the BCCI or the, like Indian cricket's going to be willing to do that. Um, make that many changes because Bihari, at least in Kohli's eyes, at the beginning of the series, Kohli was mentioning him as he's gonna be like the dark horse. He's gonna have like like the coming out series and like and he he was a player to watch essentially. So I, I don't exactly know what Indian cricket or Ravi Shastri has in mind. Um we'll see. Uh, I think Jadeja is the right call to give an extra bowling attack and spin has been do- doing well. Um it's also a, ch- a change of pace. Um so yeah I, I think it's the right decision. Um, yeah. What about you guys? I only think it's the right. I, I like I mentioned before. I only think it's the right decision simply because um, because we don't have the we don't have an informed third pacer. I'm not saying that Siraj or Saini, whoever pick is, is out of form, but there it's not the easiest start to uh, start to an international career playing against this Australian team having to bowl to Smith on these on these wickets. So that's the only reason why. Obviously, Jadeja is not really going to be in the team to be bolstering spin 
Harmon too much because he's not been bowling amazingly, to be honest, in the past one year. He's really, I think the, the real um, hope that India are hoping with picking Jadeja is because of his batting form that he showed in the ODI and T20 series recently. And also his test form has been pretty solid with the bat in the last two years. So it's basically they're looking at the trade-off between Vihari's batting and Jadeja's batting. So I do think it's a bit, it is a really unfair on Hanuma Vihari to drop him after his first test match. It's his first test match in a, in a while because obviously he, he has not been playing international career because he does not have an IPL contract. And he came out, he, he batted in two very difficult co- conditions. Once he came out under the pink ball under lights. And the second time he was batting at seven for 20. Like it really was nothing much to him to do. He was kind of bound to get out. So I do feel for Hanuma Bahari and I wish we wouldn't have to drop him, but I think it's just necessary because you might need five boys on a flat Melbourne pitch. I I also have a question on whether Rahul should open versus Gill and their position between the either the opening spot or four. Does Rahul's experience make him more suitable for that four position? Maybe not in this second test match, but once uh, Rohit comes in, do you replace Gill with Rohit Sharma so, and either play them at four? Or definitely like not. Shubman Gill, the reason they're putting him at four is because they see him as a long-term answer in this team, and you do not want to bet an opener in, a new opener in Australia as his test debut. This is asking for trouble, and it would be a great way to end up getting Shubman Gill uh into a severe loss of confidence. I think they're doing exactly the right thing by putting him at number four, betting him in properly, giving an important spot in the team, especially given that he's been on the sidelines for so long, so disappointed that he wasn't picked in West Indies. He wasn't picked in New Zealand. Um, So I think Gil will be put at number four. And the fact that they're putting him there, you don't replace your number four every game. Um, Rahul opening suggests to me that they don't really view Shaw as an option. And that, uh, because Shaw's game is frankly quite short right now. And secondly, uh, Rahul opening can only go well for you. Because if he does well, then you've got a good choice to make out of which of the three openers to pick. You don't have to rush Rohit back. If he does badly, then you just take him out, put Rohit Sharma back in, just as you were going to. Right, but wouldn't it make sense to also have Rohit come in and rather than Gil being very fresh have KL Rahul coming in at, at the four. But Rahul Which hasn't is- had a good experience in Australia. We know what Rahul's like, and he's not been good in Australia. But in the same sense yeah. of having Prithvi yeah. Shaw, Prithvi Shaw yeah. taken out just to not blow, have a blow to his confidence, the same way if Gil doesn't do well in the series. Right, but Shaw has, Shaw has been given a set of games and the warm-up matches, and he's consistently failed in them. Gil has not yet it- failed in the warm-ups, and he, you cannot take him out on the basis of one bad test. If if you're saying Gil's a long term option, wouldn't number four be the worst position to play? Because that's the that position is going to be untouched for the next. No, 10 years. well, I don't think it's a bad option to just bet him in there because here's why: it's clear that the signals from team management are that Ajinkya Rahane's time is limited unless he turns it around pretty significantly. If Rahane gets dropped, Gil slots in at number five. If Vihari gets dropped, Gil would slot in at number five or six. So. Him getting put in the middle order, four, five, six are largely interchangeable in terms of when you come in. And him getting put in the middle order is really just a way to say, we're not going to throw you in the deep end, bet in first, and we'll, you know, hopefully get you going well. But it, but it, but it worked last year. It worked two years ago. India had an opener problem, which they're again having, and they put in a fresh opener, who, just like Shubman Gill, fresh off thousands and thousands of domestic runs came in. Melbourne as well, same ground, and he ended up changing the series, in my opinion. Mike Agarwal did it two years ago. Why can't why can't why wouldn't why did people go with Gil like that? They're not that they're not that different of players. And Gil and I don't see uh Pujara and Kohli are going to be in the Indian team for at least five years. He's not going to bat at three or four in the long term anytime soon. Mike, what do you think? I want your. I, I wanted to see what you think as an as an Australian fan. If you were if you were Australia, who would you want to see opening the batting? And if you had Shubman Gill on your team, where would you think is the best position for him? For given um, your team's possible structure. Yeah, I mean, as an Australian fan, this is, this is great to hear. <laughs> like, what you want is the touring team in sort of tatters after us trying to scramble to figure out a replacement. So. You know, hey, obviously, I think any replace any debutante coming into the 
into the side after a collapse is going to be under pressure. I think the entire team is going to be under pressure. And and I saw Shaman Gill's stats in the in the warm up games, uh, sort of following the commentary along. And you know, I don't know how much emphasis you can place on the warm up games. I I can't remember who was bowling, but it wasn't obviously Stark, Cummins, and Hazelwood. Um, so I guess you got to take some of those runs with a bit of grain, like with a grain of salt. Um, I think honestly, Shubman Gill coming in at four is sort of a nothing to lose for him uh, in some ways, and I feel like if he performs, it can only be good for his confidence. And if he doesn't, then it's more like okay, he's, he's still got a bit of work to do before he comes into the side long term. So I think I think he comes in. Um, as an Australian fan, you know, any sort of chopping and changing is good to see um, from the Indian team. I'm not sure who opens, really. I haven't, I haven't seen enough of the statistics, but I think comparing Ranji Trophy runs um, to runs or innings played in Australia is, is very difficult. I think you have to really go off how they've performed in the past as a good indicator of how they might go going forward. But I think just one thing is, that's sort of not maybe been stated is the the Melbourne pitch first three days is really good to bat on. And I think India really does have a good chance of getting in. I think Nathan Lyon, he was crazy in Adelaide in the first innings. And I've never seen that from a spinner in Adelaide for quite some time. And I think he won't be that effective in Melbourne in the first innings. Like, you know, those footmarks don't appear overnight. They take like, like he'll be good in the second innings and he'll be a threat until Lushman. But um, I think, India do have a chance in Melbourne of sort of rebuilding and, and just sort of digging in and, and then posting a, a good size total. The toss so, will be very What was that through? The toss is gonna to be extremely important at Melbourne. You don't want to you don't want to be bowling first on that on that flat with him. Yeah. That's yeah, for sure. Agree. Yeah. I think both India and Australia if the last two series, Australia batted first, they scored five hundred in twenty fourteen. In twenty eighteen, India batted first, they scored four fifty and then even though India batted well, they were never able to catch up because it was just too many runs. Yeah. So I think toss will, will be a big, big factor. Yeah, I think batting last is going to be a big disadvantage for sure. Yeah. It always is in, in Australia because the game really, except for non-pink ball matches, the game really just opens up. And both Lion and Ushwin, with the form they're in right now, they both can rip apart other teams batting lineup on a day five yeah. wicket. So with Shami's injury, um, the fractured wrist or arm, some bone there, um, he we have a replacement coming in with uh, Suraj or Saini. What are you guys' thoughts on who should come in um, and why why they should be there? Uh, I personally, I think both of them are very are quality red ball bowlers, and I don't think there will be too much difference in output of who, who selects, but I'd be starting with Suraj first because he's a excellent red ball bowler and here's a bit more of a hot take i'd probably be giving siraj the new ball Ooh, not yadav no not yadav i think yadav's better i think yadav is better with the with the older ball reverse swinging ball i don't think i think boomerang and siraj will be th- more threatening i think siraj if there's any movement in a melbourne wicket siraj can expose it and i don't think there'll be that much movement in this with the second new ball any or with this with the older ball so might as well give it to Siraj, who is a proper seam bowler, I would and give it to Siraj too. Thank you. Are you giving Siraj a debut over Saini, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll give it. I think Saini, first of all, his Siraj bowled extremely well in the um in the warm up matches. Saini didn't really do himself any favors with the ODIs. I get that it's a different format, but getting tonked around like that is not good for anyone's confidence in general. Um, so if it was a wash. Based on that, I would have picked Siraj as a tiebreaker, but it's not even a wash. I mean, we know Siraj is a better um, red ball bowler. We've seen this in first-class cricket. He averages, what, 26, I believe, with the ball in first-class cricket? Yeah. Um, he's he's an excellent, excellent seam bowler. I don't think he's as big of a downgrade as everyone thinks on Shami. Obviously, he's not Mohamed Shami, but... He's certainly not, uh, you know, a Praveen Kumar or a RP Singh or a VRV Singh or any of those guys that we fielded last time around. So I end up thinking that, you know, he'll be a good option to get in and I would give him the new ball. Also, um, I think he extracts a lot more swing than most people can 
And that'll be very important because to start with, Joe Burns has that technique, weak, has that weakness still. With the in-swinging ball, um, he tends to get in his own way. His head falls over and it wraps him on the pad. He's, he, he was walking LBW for a while. Yeah, dude. yeah. if Siraj can give that a Trent Bull dismissal of Joe Burns that last year, that'd be a perfect for India. Yeah, and, and not to forget the fact that in general, in Australia, the way you win is by bowling, attacking the stumps, keeping a tight line, and getting just that slight bit of movement. But, I mean, pace also helps in Australia, and yeah, Sani is what you need brings to be quick. pace, right? Sani brings pace, but Siraj is not. Siraj, Siraj is not slow, though. He bowls at 140. Siraj could bowl 140, and as, as, a, as a RCB fan, I know that he could bowl 140 because he never tries anything else. Yeah, but consistently over the day as an opener and then eventually coming back into the attack. I think uh, he has the first-class record. He just got to back him. I think, I think it's also expectations should not be extremely high for either Siraj or Stanley who has picked. It's play, they're playing a debut match on a flat wicket in Australia. You cannot expect them to perform at the level that Ishan or Umesh can. You just hope for them to do the best that they can. But they're both quality bowlers who do have a long future with the Indian cricket team, for sure. So I'm going to push back a little bit. Go ahead, Matt, Mark. I was just going to say, who do you think is more consistent at, at keeping those sort of tight spells or, or tying those tight spells together? Because I think what's really underrated in Australia is long periods of very tight, top of off kind of sort of darting in at stumps kind of bowling. Yeah, actually, so Stuart Broad was talking about this. He said, you know, everyone talks about the key to winning in Australia being bowling 145, 145. No, that's not it. Think about the last time England won in Australia in 2010 to 11. They didn't actually have, aside from Tim Bresnan, a guy that touched 140. Tremlett, um, Tremlett. Uh, sorry, Chris Tremlett, not Tim Bresnan. Yeah. Bresnan didn't touch 140, hit 135. Aside from Tremlett, they didn't really have a bowler that consistently hit 140. But they ended up winning because the key in Australia is to put up very big first inning scores, win the toss, bat, put up big first inning scores, um, and then bowl a tight line throughout the day that attacks the stumps and get just enough movement that ends up doing just as much as raw pace does to a lot of times. Obviously there's some things where you just can't replicate pace, but there's other ways to get wickets in Australia that are just harder to do, but do work just as well. If you can execute them properly. Um, you know, I keep thinking back to when India played Varun Aaron thinking that he'd be some sort of godsend and he ended up getting, thrashed so it's yeah. not just pace yeah but he's not it's varun aaron it's more to do with him being varun aaron than him being <laughs> yeah but again my point is you know raw pace doesn't necessarily work my young's point is right that you need pace sure but you really need to keep a tight line otherwise mcgraw could never have succeeded as much as he did in australia that's true but yeah i agree but if, if you look at this key success to australia is definitely you have to be you cannot be the bowlers that will be getting fifers in England, New Zealand conditions, like a like your Dibley Dollar count count TV pieces, they're not going to be working in Australia. I do think there there is a pace limit you need of minimum in order to bowl well in Australia. When India won in Australia, it was a church, it was a combination of what Mayang said, but also having three bowlers who all bowled 140k for long periods mm. of time. Mm. Correct, you you need that, of course, but I'm saying Siraj is capable of that, and so are yeah. India's other two bowlers. Yad Umesh Yadav bowls 145. Jasprit Boomer can bowl 145, 147. So, yeah, Yadav also like last series, like last time in Australia, Yadav was dropped because he, even though he was bowling 145k, he was not able to bowl. He had a he had a one leg side ball every over, which basically meant that all they need one boundary, four runs and over. But it seems like based on the first touch, he's going to be very disciplined at least from what we saw. Yeah, he's improved a lot for sure. He's definitely improved a lot and. But I don't think there's anybody better in, in the Indian team at bowling these long attritional spells than Ishan Sharma. But uh, not something we can really talk about. He's, he's injured. It's unfortunate. But we got to move on to this test series to play. So, yeah. Um, before we move on to the next topic, actually, I had one more thing I want to bring up about. There was a, a brief conversation that came up after Shami's injury in the cricketing world about restrictions on bowlers bowling a certain number of bouncers and over or – should they be allowed to bowl a certain thing? I, I don't agree with these restrictions. Bowlers are already at a disadvantage in my mind. Um, batsmen, it, it's really a batter's game right now, batsman's game. But, um, yeah, I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on it? Should there be a limit to the number of bouncers you bowl? And, like, the height, should it be considered a no ball above the shoulders? With so many injuries and concussions, it's, is it 
Is it something that we should be keeping in mind? So I've actually had a lot of history with concussions. So um, I don't think so. Uh, my reasoning for this is, you know, it is true that batsmen are getting hit more and more on the head. However, this is a technical weakness. And what happens is this, your front press ends up being very, very significant. So you don't have enough time to react. If you go back and across, or if you um, stay a little bit more balanced, what you can do in playing the short ball is you have a little bit more time to play it. And also you get your head out of the line of the ball. And this is what batsmen used to do. If you take the bouncer out of the game, it takes a very crucial element out of the game also. And no one bowls a bouncer to hurt someone. As Stuart Broad said, you do it to change their positioning, their comfort, their shots that they can play but it's a very useful tool now anything above the head is already called a wide more than two bouncers in an over is already called a no ball maybe you could reduce it to one i could see that but bouncers in my mind have a role to play in the game what we really need to do is to stop encouraging people to continuously step up to 150k bowling with their front foot and try to take it on like that. It's not a good technique. And the fact that it works is good. It's clearly a T20. It's a T20. Um, it's a T20 thing. Exactly. And mindset I, just creeped into most people's test game. Exactly. And that's the problem in my mind because these rates of hits to the head never happened before. The fact that they're happening now has a lot to do with the fact that you cannot get your head out of the line of the ball in time. And, uh, and George, you do say it's a it's a batsman's game, but I think bowlers are the bowling quality at the moment is fast bowling, especially is extremely high in the world. Australia, India, this is a two of the best place bowling attacks probably in the world, and there's two other teams that could easily say they're up there as well. So that so that is probably the, also a big reason that sorry um there's also also obviously a big reason why more batsmen are getting hit and we can't limit the bound bouncers to because of that. Another the front foot press also happens to be in a T20 or ODI game when you're trying to go for big shots. Obviously, if you get a good length ball, usually a good length ball is something something you have to decide depending on the pace, the conditions, your game. Should I go back or front to it? Because usually you can access it with on with on both sides. But to hit a good length ball off the back foot for a six is extremely difficult because really just have either a a back foot, uh, either just have a back foot punch over covers or you can. Try to pull it for six, and usually you don't. It's not short enough. But on the front foot, you can easily go and hit it over the head. You can go down and scoop it. You can play it over covers off the front foot. So the front foot press gives a lot more shot um, attacking offers to a good length delivery, which normally would be played on the back foot, especially back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I have to fully agree with everything. I think. I think oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, no. go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think I fully agree with everything that's been said. I think getting rid of the balance, I just basically takes away like half of cricket really like you know backward shots become more and more obsolete and i think i don't know if this is a contentious topic but do you think like the increased protection um to the head through like helmet technology may have made batsmen and along with t20 may have made batsmen like a little complacent in the way they like approach mountains i don't know that's definitely something yeah i just feel like that's that's yeah in the past even without helmets Yes, people would still get in the, get hit in the head, but it, it wouldn't be as frequent. And I think, yeah, the helmet technology is just allowing batsmen to to take unnecessary risks when they when it comes to playing the bouncer, regardless of which format it, it's in. It, yeah, I, I I agree, Mark. Yeah, it's definitely the the fact that they probably feel a bit more safer because usually c- concussion usually might might rule you out for a match, but really not going to cause serious injury. Now, obviously, we have had a freak accident with Philip Hughes, and I disagree that concussion wouldn't cause serious injury. I think the problem with concussion is this. You'd never know when you're going to get better. I ended up getting hit in the head with the cricket ball last September. I'm still not fully recovered. So, um, I mean, yeah, you know. if you see with Stuart Broad's batting, obviously he's yeah, never. I mean, Stuart Broad's batting is never what it was because he had nightmares after that. But the fact is concussions are the reason people are so cautious about them is because you know, you never know. Are you going to get better next week, next year? I mean, I got 99% better within three weeks. And that last 1% for me uh, is in physical faculty in terms of long periods of focus or um, extensive activity or altitude changes. And I still have trouble handling 
the latter two, right? The extensive um, altitude change, for example. And that's just an effect of the concussion that no one knows when it'll go away. If you're a professional athlete, these types of things take on a heightened importance in a magnified um, role, especially because every single aspect matters. So I tend to think concussions do have a much more serious effect than a broken arm or a broken leg. And I, I think, personally speaking, I think if you're going to teach someone T20 batting, then you're going to have to weigh up the potential of taking him in test matches with the possibility for serious injury. At least there needs to be some sort of technical innovation that allows you to play the short ball well while you have a big front press also. I don't know yeah. what that is. I mean, I think I think the simplest thing is if you have a front foot press and you get a bouncer, first thing is you're not going to be able to hook it for six. You're not going to be able to pull it. You're, you're not going to be able to get in a good position. So you need to come up with a backup plan that at least gets you to be able to sway out of the way or ducking ducking under it. I usually and ducking is not used anymore because people try to take on every ball. Yeah, but so if you're if you're in a test match, you don't need to take on every ball, right? And if you have a front foot press in a test match, and that's your game. You can't stop it. But I'd say swaying out of the way to me is probably the best way to play a bouncer, in my opinion. Especially especially if you're a lefty, because the bouncer tends to sway into you from over the wicket. I would tend to more, I mean, we're on podcast, so y'all can't see me. I tend to play this instead of ducking right under it. Yeah. Yeah. We can move on. Yeah, I think Pukowski is like a case in point in all of this. So, yeah, just having repetitive concussions and then so many concussions at once. It's just, it, it all builds up and never goes away. Uh, Mike, introduce the Smith topic now. It'll just be you and me and Serge. Oh, yeah, I guess the last question I wanted to ask everyone was um, the supposed form slump of Steve Smith in test matches where I think last summer Manus Labuschagne just came through and outshone him, but he hasn't scored a, a test match 100 since England, I believe, um, or at least for the last 15 months. So I don't know if that's a, a, a case for concern or is that just something that he's going to prove me wrong and then get 200 in Melbourne, but... Uh, what are your thoughts on yeah. this? He hasn't had the chance to really like prove himself. It's been short stints, and it's never he's never really gotten the like full opportunity to do it. Obviously, with the the one off twenty nine runs or so in the first innings of this wasn't great to watch, but Ashwin did bowl him an absolute peach. But um, yeah, it's I don't know. It's it's Smith, greatest batsman, test batsman in my mind currently. And yeah, in contention, contention forever in like in, in forever in history, but um, yeah, he'll he'll be. It's twenty twenty. Twenty twenty is just a weird year. It's gonna be if Smith doesn't yeah. score a century in this Test match, him, Joe Root, and Coley would have gone the entire twenty twenty without a single hundred. Yeah, I mean Roots, Roots. That, yeah, but that's further further yeah. proving my point that Kane Williamson is the greatest player. Of- <laughs> oh, no, no, we're but not like, going into this. Stuff. Like, like. At 250 against West Indies, right before he had a kid, too. What a player. But, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm not too worried about As an Indian fan, I am still worried about Steve Smith. And every time I feel like he plays against India, I don't see India getting him out. So I was I started screaming when Ashwin got him out because I could not believe that it, an Indian spinner outfoxed him in his own home wicket. But I'm not too worried about his form. I think yeah. last summer, last summer, Neil Wagner bowled some brilliant short ball plans. And they... And some really good traditional bowling in order to get rid of him. But he wasn't, it's not like he was batting bad. He still averaged around 30, 40 that series. It's not Smith standards, mm-hmm. obviously, but he was still getting 50s here and there. And obviously, it wasn't needed for him to score big when Marnus, Marnus, David Warner were doing so, were doing well already. I think yep. Smith just needs one innings probably. And we saw it when he, all he said was he found his hands. All he said, and then he just yeah. came and destroyed the Indian bowling attack and and scored two of probably his greatest hundreds in ODI format. That's not even his format. So. Yeah, I think coming into the series, he did say also on the topic of Neil Wagner bowling bouncers to him and trying to get him on the back foot, getting him out that way. He did say coming into the series, bring it on to the Indian bowlers, bowl all of these bouncers. So he's clearly worked on it. Yep. Um, I don't feel it's going to be that much of an issue because I mean he seemed as you said. He found his hands, and him just saying that helped him a lot. And it was he wasn't lying about it either. So, 
I don't know. I think he has the ability to play on, take on those bouncers. And he's, I think the reason he said that was like he knows like we'll nobody bowls bouncers the way Neil Wagner does. Neil Wagner doesn't bowl one forty-five k bouncers at your head all the time. It's like different paces. It's because he can do it for ten overs in a row. And I'm pretty sure he's saying that because he doesn't expect the Indian bowlers to be able to do that. And I don't think the Indian bowlers even went with the bouncer play really. They brought they went with the traditional fourth stump, fourth stump plan to him. They had a couple catching mid wickets just to stop his uh walk across flick and then occasional bouncer which is always needed as a proper test match bowling spell so i don't think india india was baited into that trap but it will be really interesting to see if any if india can keep smith quiet that that will be a huge factor if they have any chance of winning this test match because yeah smith, i thought they bowled well into for sure like one of 28 or whatever it was like it's you know tribute to india putting it in the right areas and that fourth stump line and just cutting off the options through midwicket really yeah. could be an interesting battle going into um, Melbourne. Yeah, it, it will be interesting because in the yeah. 2017 Ashes, England tried to do the same thing. They also tried to like cut his options through midwicket and consistently kept bowling it wide, wide. And C. Smith waited in that, especially in that first gab 100. He waited. He made his slowest test century there. But if England weren't able to eventually fall through the plan, India are one for one on him right now. It'll be interesting to see if they falter. And Smith's able to come out and just score hundreds, or if he's not able to stay patient enough with the, with the whole trapping him on the leg side plan. But yeah, it'll be very interesting to watch. Always exciting to watch Steve Smith play, I guess, especially against the Indian bowling attack, which is very strong. Yeah, I, I think on the topic of plans also, I want to briefly mention Pujara and the Australian attack and their plan for him. I think um, two summers ago, the way they got him out, after he stayed in for what like what seemed to be like five days of the test match, um, was through the leg gully catch and, and putting in a leg gully, which is not really a traditional fielding position, but um, that's the way they got him out this 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 time as well. Um, is that is that a flaw that you see Pujara having um, having him work over? It's doing not the same. On the it's not the same plan because leg the leg gully plan they they exposed it in the warm up match in the first warm up match where he got fifty. That's a fast bowler just bowling a leg stump ball and then just a little aerial flick get caught a leg. This is more Pujara was trying to defend the right. ball against Nathan Lyon and it just caught the inside edge and they had a good fielding position at leg slip. I wouldn't really put them at the same uh, similar plan. That was just Lyon was spinning the ball bowling well and he had close in fielders that catch could have easily gone to the key one day so but also the idea that the australians are are putting that field in means they are bowling yeah. to that plan they, that's what they're intending to happen is that a, a flaw that you see in pujara's technique or skill uh, or any like, i think i honestly I think know. it's a plan that could work uh, on anyone because if you bowl a good length ball on the pads and you try to flick it you cannot keep it on the ground per, for the entire duration. You can get it on the ground eventually, but it'll be in the air for a very short period of time. And all you need is a br- couple brilliant fielders. England got Steve Smith like that once at, at the end's last things in the ashes as well. Broad got him, sto- caught Stoke. The plan that worked against Coley a couple times as well. And that's just because it's physically impossible for you, if you want to hit that ball, to put it down. So the only real option if you don't, if they, to put the fielder there is probably to cut the runs, stop them from playing that shot. And if they do make this mistake, you know you're you put your best fielder there to catch it, so I wouldn't I consider Pajara, this. I think Pajara is similar to Smith in in the way that he likes to get off the mark to the leg side, and I think Australia has decided that they do want to attack more like middle to off stump rather than outside off, and I think that's just good captaincy and, and good strategic placement of fielders. And as uh, Rishi said, I think it's a plan that really can work to any, uh, work for anyone, especially at the like early in their innings, and I don't see like uh, Pujara going for like expansive off off drives, so they know that they can like stack the legs of field a little bit and, and attack those stumps. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Quick last 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 thing, Mike. What do you think about Ian Chapel came out today and said if James Patterson was playing any other test team, he'd be he'd easily be the in the in the, any of their test sides, and he'd probably be one of the best bowlers in the world. We say James Madison right now is unlucky to be playing amongst these three Australian bowlers. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think, like, Paddington has a has a very decent test record. And I think, like, just you just can't push any of these three bowlers out at the moment. They, they not only are, like, individually very skilled, but I think as a bowling unit, along with Nathan Lyon as well, they're just a, a very good, like, team attack. 
team ball in his hack. So I think I, I'd have to agree that I think James Pattinson would probably force his way into to many an international lineup. But you know, who do you get rid of, right? And um, yeah, he's he's unlucky for sure. Yeah, I definitely see him getting a chance. He might get a chance. Obviously, he'll be picked if there's an injury. Australia hosts Afghanistan for a match, so he'll probably get an opportunity there. But yeah, just if they're always trying to go with the three best placers, then uh, he'll always be the fourth option. I also yeah, and with Cam Green coming in as well, like you know, Australia doesn't feel the need to ever play four paces. I feel like I yeah. think the three along with Cam Green, supplementary others, and Lion and Labuschagne when needed is more than sufficient for a test bowling unit. I don't even see Cam Green's bowling being necessary in the Australian team because the three, when when you have Nathan, Nathan I does not have bad days really. You really just need you really need a bowl if your if your spinner is having a bad day, like if Nate that's why I said English attack the line because then they can really change Australia's plans. But if Lathan line consistently bowls the way he always does, you just need one pacer operating at a time. So hmm. yeah, I actually think the only way James has to really make the team is if his batting keeps improving. He's a decent batsman. If he could make That'd it. A, cool. But I think Australia has made it clear if you want to be in the top seven, you have to be in the top seven batsmen, not top four bowlers. So, yeah. Unlu- definitely an unlucky cricketer at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. Th- thanks, Mike, for coming on to the podcast. We hope, we hope to have you for more podcasts in the future. That- this will probably wrap up our segment for today for the India Australia Test Series. Hopefully, we'll be able to get you guys uh, another episode after the second Test match. So, yeah. Thank you, Suresh. Thank you, Mike, for being on here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yep.